a member of your church. Thank you for forgiveness and cleansing. Thank you for um, a new heart and for your spirit living in us. Lord, help us to die to ourselves. Help us to live for you. Help us to endure in this race that we are running. Help us to help one another. And um, may we learn from your word, and may that word produce in us uh, a closer, uh, that our minds would think more closely with yours, that we would... um, We'd think as you think, we'd care about what you care about, and we would then uh, act in ways that are manifesting of how great you are. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We're right in the middle of Paul's Thanksgiving prayer, and... I believe we're at verse 7, because we were talking about charisma, uh, which is translated gift or spiritual gift, and one of the things about the Corinthian church is they had all the gifts, so they... That's what he's saying in verse 7, so that you are not lacking in any gift. Um, In some way, he's talking about my letter will help you uh, not be lacking. But really, Corinth was one of the places where the the spiritual gifts were very manifest. They They were just prevalent, not just some of them, but all of them. And so... uh. So he's bringing that up. There's going to be a pretty long discussion about spiritual gifts later on in the book, Um, particularly I think in verse twelve or chapter twelve. There's a whole chapter on spiritual gifts, Uh, and then thirteen talks about the way of love, and chapter fourteen is about prophecy and tongues. So like he's he's going to talk extensively on spiritual gifts, but he introduces it here in this Thanksgiving thanksgiving that he gives them but as they are experiencing these spiritual gifts he says that they are waiting what are they waiting on yeah so the revealing obviously he can't be talking about um, the first coming of Christ right because you wouldn't be waiting on that that's already occurred so they're talking about the return of Christ. So he's, he's thankful to God, and he's um, uh, giving thanks to them as they are waiting. Now this word for waiting is a, is a... Not often do I really think that the word itself gives, in the Greek, a lot of fullness of meaning, but in this case it does. Um, so it has two, two aspects One is patience, and the other is eagerness. So you're, as you wait upon Christ, you're waiting for his revealing. You're like eagerly, you're like, oh, I can't wait. Like you're waiting for your Christmas to come or something like that. But it's also patiently waiting. You know, you're waiting upon it. You're not, you're not, um, uh, going out and jumping ahead of it. You're, you're just patiently waiting. And I think that's a pretty neat uh, combination of eager expectation with patient waiting. That's what we're doing with the, the message or the revealing of Christ. And a good question for us is, is that the way we think of the return of Christ? You know, are we eagerly waiting that? Are we thinking of that day like, man, I just can't wait till it comes? Or, yeah, so, okay, good. <laughs> and I, I think it's true, especially as you get older, I think you see the, the pains and the struggles, and you're just like, man, Lord, I just want you to come. So, yeah. Okay, <clears throat> um, verse 8 says, uh, This Lord Jesus Christ, 
who will sustain you to the end. Um, where does the, where does the uh, ability to endure come from? Where, if someone's going to endure to the end, where is that going to come from? Only God. Only God. Paul's confidence is not in their ability to endure. It's in Christ's ability to sustain them to the end. <clears throat> right. And I don't, Debbie, I always remember Dot. She would, I would say, talk about perseverance. And she would always bring up preservation. And I think that's true. You know, it's both of those. You're, you're persevering, but really it's God preserving you. Right? He's the one sustaining you. Nice. Nice balance there <clears throat> until the end. Um, okay, <clears throat> now he then says, uh, you will sustain you to the end, and, and my translation says guiltless, uh, that, that's also blameless. And blameless is one of those words that... <clears throat> I, it always... It always uh, trips me up when I read it. Because when you think of blameless, you do think of guiltless. And like when someone looks at you, they can find no fault. Right, but, that, but that's what I'm saying. But he's the idea of sustaining you guiltless to the end, it, it's this challenge of um, does it refer to justification or does it refer to sanctification? That's the question in this passage. <clears throat> so, uh, and let, let me just go through a few verses to help you. So let's look at Titus chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. Titus chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. Uh, do we have a microphone being passed around or not yet? Oh, good. Uh, give that to Ryan. Let him do read verses. Why don't you read verses 5 through 7, Ryan? Uh, Titus 1? Yep. All right. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. Okay, so um, when he's talking about um, above reproach, uh, I think... Let me just make sure here that that's the same word um, in the Greek. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Verse verse six. That's that's the same word. Um, so in Titus, when he says blameless or irreproachable or guiltless. Do you think he's talking about justification or do you think he's talking about sanctification? It's a qualification to be an elder. Seems like sanctification to me. So so this word blameless can be used for sanctification. Uh, And and what do we do when we say that? We, We then say, we qualify it. He's not saying perfection because no one could be perfect, Right? But he is talking about a higher level of, of being above reproach, right? And so, um, but there we're, we take blameless and you think, is blameless like 100% blameless? Or is it just, um, you know, graded kind of on a curve, you're better than others, blameless. And it seems like if you're talking about sanctification, it has to be the curve, right? It can't just be, you have to be perfect in sanctification to be an elder because no one then would be an elder. Ryan, are you perfect yet? No, so, all right, so turn over to 1 Thessalonians 
Um, bring that up to uh, Sam to read over there. Cassidy's right. There you go. Raise your hand, Sam, so she knows. Yeah. And Dude. Sam, you just keep your microphone because I'm going to let you read all these here. We're going to be like four of them, so go ahead. To the end, he may establish your hearts unblameless in holiness before God, even our Father, at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. All right, so in, in 1 Thessalonians, he's using blameless, and he's really, he's talking not just about leaders, right? He's talking about all the church. He's, God's going to establish your hearts blameless. So my question to you, do you think it's sanctification, or do you think he's talking about justification? Probably justification, you would think, right? <clears throat> All right. First uh, Thessalonians five twenty three, Sam. And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly, and I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved to blameless into the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so there in that one later on, he even uses the word sanctification. But then it asks the question, is he talking about like practical day-to-day -day sanctification or is he talking about that definitive sanctification that we talked about at the beginning where he says all of you are sanctified in Christ Jesus. Um, and he even uses the idea completely. So it's, it's, it's uh, a future-looking, may God sanctify you completely, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So is it, 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 I just want to throw this out. Do you think it's talking about justification or sanctification here? Or some mixture? Yeah, okay, okay. Uh, and what did you say, Lori? Well, but if you were talking about justification, you might say he's already done it. Because that's a declared thing, you know. <laughs> so so he's, he, it's something, you know, you got justification, sanctification. You also got glorification. What is glorification? Complete sanctification. And so at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you see him face to face, all of the remaining sin in your life will be dropped off, and you'll, you'll, you will be perfect on that day. So maybe it is speaking, you know, justification was the declaration at the beginning, sanctification is what he's doing in your life, and that this is talking about the final moment, that you'll be completely blameless on that day. Um, all I'm saying is that as I wrestle with these in Scripture, when I, when I think about my own progressive sanctification... I, I sometimes feel good, sometimes feel bad about that. <laughs> and then, but when I think about seeing him face to face and knowing that he will wipe away all the rest of the sin and I will be made perfect in holiness, that's the, that's the language of the confession. Uh, that is a type of, I will be completely sanctified on that day. <clears throat> so, all right, then look at verse Philippians 1.6. For being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. All right, now I want you to go down and read verse 10 too, Sam. That ye may approve these things that are excellent, and that ye may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. And that, that uh, without offense is again blameless. Okay, so Paul's <clears throat> again talking about a work in them that he says God has started, but he hasn't finished yet, but you can have confidence that he will finish it, and then you can, you're going to approve what's excellent, and then you will be blameless on the day of Christ. So I think by and large, blameless should be taken as 100% blameless. I get it that in Titus, when he's talking about elders needing to be blameless, no one's perfect in this life. I get that. But 
But by and large, I do think he's speaking of 100% blameless, and I think he's, it's more than justification because de- justification is a declaration, whereas this blamelessness is that your character, who you are as a person, has been transformed into someone who's blameless. And, and to me, that scares me sometimes because I'm not always as blameless as I'd like to be. But on the other hand, it, it, it drives me toward what God is doing. He's doing a work in me and taking me to completion on that day. And that's because he's going to do that work, I'm going to continue striving for holiness. Uh, you know, talk to people who are struggling in a particular sin they often feel defeated. What's the point? I failed. No, God's taking you to complete victory. Therefore, you keep striving today, if that makes any sense. You can, you can continue this battle. And so I think Paul is encouraging the, the Corinthians to stay in the fight um, with the goal of being standing before God on that day and being perfectly blameless in his sight. So, And our hope's not just in our present uh, act of obedience, but it's in... Christ's perfect work in us, that he'll complete that. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. I've done the egg thing before. This is your soul, dark, dead, in sin. Your body, the outward portion, that's dying. When you become a Christian, I think there's two ways to think about. One, you can look at it like this. That you're given a a new heart that is truly pure, and in his heart loves what's righteous, that that part of you. But then you also have your old heart who continues to, to not love righteousness, but the idea is that this, this old heart now belongs to what's called the flesh and therefore will die and fall away when you see Jesus face to face or when you die, those sorts of things. But there's another way to look at this, and that is that the new heart, is growing up in like out of the old heart like it's actually it's actually coming forth cuz it's really hard in your life to discern what desires of the old heart and what desires of the new heart right it just feels like you're just which is which you know and so i like the concept of a dead tree but then there's sprouts growing up from it that are new and that's what christ is doing he is he's like he's recreating a new you in the midst of the old you. And that, that new you is truly hungering and thirsting after righteousness. It's pure. Yeah. What, this one here? Uh, well, Paul does that. He says, um, uh, yeah, I did what I didn't want to do. Uh, you know, you can, you can. There's, and he says, uh, Nevertheless, it wasn't me doing it. It was sin living in me, right? So he's doing that, and you're right. You can take that too far into kind of like a Gnosticism, which says when I sin, it's not really me, so I'm not really guilty of anything. No, it's, yeah, it's still you. You know, it's still you. Um, but yes, I think both of these images are, are necessary images to help us understand what's going on inside of us and what is
I like looking at verses like blameless like this because it, it challenges my heart. I don't just move it into justification. Yeah, I'm blameless, whatever I do. I think, oh, I want to be blameless on that day. I don't want to be found a hypocrite. I don't want to just be living in sin my whole life. I want to I strive for blamelessness. At the same time, I know if I put all the weight on what I'm doing now, I'll never be perfectly blameless on that day. So I have to trust in Christ to actually finish the work that he has begun so that I'm truly blameless on that day. So he gets the credit. He gets the glory. You run the race. That's right. That's right. <laughs> the ridge line? <laughs> yes. It is another ridge line. Another tension, which is... Uh, all the books that I'll write whenever I get to heaven, uh, the tensions of life. Okay. Oh, yeah, well, they, they're not true contradictions. There are, there are no true contradictions, but there are. And it, someone didn't like tensions. They wanted it like a harmonious tension. Maybe think of... Maybe you think of a violin where the, the strings are tied at both ends, and that's what makes the beautiful music. It's not like they're really opposed to each other. It's just creating the harmony that you need. What's that? That said that? Oh. <clears throat> okay. Verse 9, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So, so he, he's found, he's founding, he's, he's establishing the confidence that they will continue in what attribute of God? His faithfulness. So he doesn't, he doesn't ground it in their abilities, he grounds it in God's faithfulness. And he also uh, grounds it in one great event, the calling, your calling that God has done. He has called you. In the earlier in 1 Corinthians, he said that he has called them saints. He has sanctified them in Christ Jesus. But in this situation, he says that they have been called into what? Fellowship. See how it's a difference. Like one, you're just included in the headship of Christ. Now you're in this fellowship with Christ. It's like an ongoing interaction and relationship with Christ. And I think both of those are important as well. That that main, you know, you get the concept of abiding in Christ. You're in an ongoing relationship with Him. So these two aspects relate to our two sacraments. Which one relates to our being under the headship of Christ and sanctified in Christ Jesus? You're called saints. Which one do you think that relates to? Baptism. Which one relates to being called into fellowship? The Lord's Supper. You see how, like, Paul's, it's not rocket science that we have two sacraments and they're slightly different sacraments, meaning they're both connected to Christ, both sanctified in Christ, but baptism looks at this headship, kind of looks at a snapshot of the whole thing. It's like a photo of your whole uh, life beginning to end in Christ, where Lord's Supper is this ongoing fellowship with him. Okay? Right, well, God gave the, God gave the visible signs to represent spiritual realities, right? So if you're actually spiritually baptized in Christ... It is a snapshot of your whole sanctification Christ, not just the very beginning of your conversion, but of your entirety, the beginning of his work of calling you to the end of his work where he glorifies you. Baptism symbolizes that entire picture. Sanct uh, Lord's Supper pictures this ongoing fellowship that we have with Christ, which is why you do the one only once, and the other you do repeatedly. So, okay. All right, any questions on that Thanksgiving section right now? We're going to move on. All right, let's read 10 through 17. Sam, you can pick someone else to read. 
Do you, you even have the mic yet? No, Cassidy. Cassidy, go pick someone else to read. Somebody wants to read, raise your hand, and Cassidy will bring it to you. There you go. Clark will read for you. You're going to read um, 10 through 17, Clark. I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another so that there may be no divisions among you and that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers, some from Clo's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized into the name of Paul? I am thankful that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one can say that they've been baptized into my name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Not with the words of man's wisdom, but the cross of Christ, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Okay, so what, what is the problem? Divisions, okay? Paul says he appeals to them. Are there any other um, translations that you guys have? Besides, everyone, everyone says appeal. So it's the word parakaleo, which is uh, to call alongside. Is what the spirit does. Um, he's the paraclete. Um, so it can, it can be anywhere from like encourage to hammer over the head, right? You know, it can be like harsh exhortation to, uh, to kind of a nice comforting appeal. And uh, I just tell you that so when you, they're um, making the decision, our translators, uh, on appeal. And I think it's probably a good way to say that because he then says, I appeal to you brothers. He could have said in a less endearing way, you know, you rugrats, you, you know, he, he's like, I appeal to you, brothers. You know, he could have uh, implemented his authority as apostle. He doesn't do that. He, he's like, nah, I, I'm reaching out to you. Come on, listen to me in this, right? So um, what does he want them to do? What is he hoping for? He wants them to be united. He wants them to agree the same mind, the same judgment, same focus. Okay, that's what he's going after, right? Yeah, no quarreling. Now, this is, a, this is Paul uh, speaking Southern because he says, y'all, this is what he literally says, y'all speak the same. That's, that's, the, that's the language. Y'all speak the same now. In other words, um, talk in the same way, uh, agree, uh, but it's literally y'all speak the same. Um, so what does he mean by this? What does this actually look like? Talking to the whole church at Corinth, uh, it could be talking to the whole global church and saying the same thing, but he's certainly talking to the church at Corinth. He tells them, y'all ought to speak the same. What does that mean? What does that look like? Okay, so same doctrine. Anything else? I think someone said purpose. Maybe same purpose. Yeah, like uh, <laughs> mutual submission, okay. Uh-huh. Yeah, th- now just kind of think about this in our world today. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, we, that's true. That's a big one. Yes, it is. Um, are there times in our worship service where we are encouraged to speak the same things? The Lord's Prayer? The doxology? What? The confession, even when we sing hymns, 
You see how those are really good things. Those, those, those are ways in which we as a church are in agreement. That's why we call it our affirmation of common faith. Or we sing a hymn because it's not, or a psalm, not just because it says truth, but it also tells us that you are singing the same truth that Christians sang hundreds and hundreds of years ago. You're, even, you're not just one with the people in the room singing it. You're one with saints in the past who have sung it. Does that make sense? That's, so there's, there's things that you do to speak the same. We're not making up a new gospel. We're preaching and teaching the same gospel that was once entrusted to the saints. Um, I think it's interesting that he, he literally says not just think the same, he says, speak the same. Uh, and I think that's, that's helpful too because no two people will always agree in their minds on everything. But, he, but there's this sense of some things are so important that these are the things that the church lives and dies on and we should be thinking the same about them and we should be speaking the same about them. Which is why our confession doesn't give us answers to every question that we have but it does give us answers to questions on the most important issues in the church. And it helps us to be in agreement and to affirm those with one another. Um, <clears throat> so, and I also think it's nice when we bring in affirmations of faith from other denominations, usually other Reformed churches, uh, like the Belgic Confession and others. We, we bring those in because it helps us to see that it's not just a Presbyterian thing. It's not just the PCA, but we are united with the church as a whole, which is why it's also good to speak uh, the Apostles' Creed, uh, the, um, the, the Nicene Creed. You know, those are important ones to speak as well because it unites the church as a whole. Um. Now, one thing, and this kind of goes back to, I think, Lee talking about self. I hope, parents, you'll hear this teaching to your children. Um, Our world teaches that in order to be human, you must, in a sense, express yourself. You must express who you are as opposed to anyone else. I'm just being me, and that's being authentic, and that's, that's what it means to be human. Well, right off the bat, the Bible tells us, Paul tells us, no, I want you all to speak the same. What they're saying there is not just the same, I should speak the same as John. We're saying that God has spoken the truth, and that the biggest part of being human is being conformed to the truth that God has spoken. See how that's different than the world thinks? And so, uh, it, this idea of, I'm not somehow limited as a human being because I'm conformed to a doctrine that was handed down to me. No, that's actually enabling me to express my humanity, humanity to its fullest. It's bringing me into conformity with Christ. That's what life's about, and sanctification. Yes, you may. Oh, hold on a second, bring the mic up to him. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I think it has something to do with what we're talking about. It says Christians should be overwhelmed by the simple truth that they take so much for granted that the eternal God has deigned to share with us some of the truths that are on his mind. He condescends to elevate us poor undeserving sinners by actually sharing with us a portion of what he knows. Mm-hmm. Accordingly, since scriptures require that saving faith be grounded in, in truth, <coughs> True knowledge. Excuse me. So uh, I, I just left it at that, but basically we have to all be speaking proposition of truth. We have to be saying biblical declarative sentences that everybody can take and parse and understand in the same way. And there's no contradictions, paradoxes at all with what you're saying. Very good. Very good. Yeah. So also, Robert Raymond actually is an excellent... Uh, uh, systematic theology. I, I much benefited from that uh, systematic theology. Um, now here's a here's another thing. You you often hear 
that doctrine divides. It's, it's precisely the opposite. Doctrine unites. You can't, you can't think opposing ideas and be united. You have to submit to the one idea that God has spoken, and as we do to that, we have unity with one another. It's truth that unites. Uh, doctrine unites. In order to... My study of the Bible has done more to help me unite with other Christians than uh, ignoring the doctrines of the Bible. In fact, I would tell you that, that, that Paul's doctrine that every Christian fits into one body of Christ that are all united to the head who is Christ, that doctrine is what moves him to say the things that he says. If you got rid of this doctrine, he wouldn't know what to do with the divisions in the church. But because he knows that they're all under one head, Christ, and that we're, he, the, Christ is being formed in us, he's directing us, he's moving us, then the, then the more that we're conformed to Christ, the more that we will be united with the rest of the body of Christ. Okay? <clears throat> so much of Paul's teaching in this letter is correcting bad doctrine. He's confronting bad doctrine. Bad doctrine divides. Good doctrine does not divide. It unites. Well, it divides you from unbelievers, <laughs> but it doesn't divide you from the truth, right? We're all in that same truth. Now, uh, in verse 11, he says that he receives a verbal report from Chloe's people. Uh, She's a lady of some influence in the church. And he says that they, he sees that they are quarreling. Right? Is that the word? Reported to me that some of you are quarreling. And then again, he calls them my brothers. Even the theology that, that one brother to another brother, right? They're all brothers in the, in the church. That uh, drives him. Uh, quarreling, it's the doctrine. This is a doctrine. This is a truth. Quarreling is one of the worst sins among Christians. That's a doctrinal statement. That's a truth proposition. You want to be quarrelsome, you are actually fighting against Christ. It's destructive. So let's look at some of these. So Peter, you're going to look up Romans 1, John, Romans 13, uh, Gary, 1 Corinthians 3, Benji, 2 Corinthians 12, and Hope, Galatians 5, Debbie, 1 Timothy 6, uh, and Jerry will do you Titus 3. Okay? I want you to see, start up here with Peter. Uh, you are Romans 129. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips. All right, so right at the, you know, Paul's listing the big list of sins, and strife is right there in it. There's a biggie, okay? Romans 13, 13 for John here. Let us walk properly in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. All right, so right up there with uh, all forms of sexual immorality, quarreling. Do you see that? I mean, quarreling. You want to be divisive? You want to be full of strife? You want to be someone who's quarrelsome? You're right up there with the ones that God is, is angry with, so... Uh, 13, 13, uh, 1 Corinthians 3, 3. 
All right, so there he's just talking to them. He, he says that they are in the flesh. In the flesh would be very, very bad in, in his context. And then he says, oh, what convinces me you're in the flesh? Because you're full of striving, quarreling, jealousy. 2 Corinthians 12.20. Benji. For I fear that perhaps when I come I may find you not as I wish and that you may find me not as you wish, that perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. It's hard to, hard to see. It's right there. Right? I mean, it's like it makes every list. You know, some sins make all the lists. This is one that makes all the lists. Okay? All right, First Timothy 6.4. Galatians. Oh, sorry, Galatians first thing. Galatians 5.20. Idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions. So right up there with sorcery, you know, see someone that's just, you know, into sorcery, you're like, get away from me. Ah, that's, that's terrible. Right up there on that list. Quarrelings, divisions. All right, 1 Timothy 6.4, back to Debbie. He is conceited and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words and results in, that results in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions. Okay. So there, again, and I love the way he puts an unhealthy craving for controversies. that ever happened in the church? Yes, it does. It's like you're living for the fight. Uh, I, I'm, I love reading books on the Civil War, so I'm reading this. Uh, just finished a book on General Sherman. Don't don't claim me a heretic because I say that. Um, but like after the war is over, after the you know the, the South is well, the, some Southerners' war is not over yet. But but it, the military battles were over. Sherman takes his troops up to D.C. and they're just there. And, and they're, you know, to their own credit, they think they've won the war. And they, they meet up with tr- federal troops who've spent their whole war in Washington, D.C., right? So they've been sitting around doing nothing for years while they've been fighting all the battles, right? So the war is over. What do you think happens as the troops of Sherman's army meet up with the troops of Washington, D.C.? They're fighting, brawling in the streets. Just, you know, that's what they're doing. It's like, we couldn't get enough, you couldn't get enough of war? You're going to do it now with your own troops? You know, that's what they're doing, right? So there's something in some of us that just wants to fight. And Paul is saying that that quarrelsome attitude is not of Christ. An unhealthy craving for controversy. Okay? Now, people in Sherman's army wouldn't have said they had an unhealthy craving for controversy. They were just saying they're defending their honor because we were the best. Anyway, uh, nobody admits to this when they're actually doing it. Okay, um, did we get to Titus 3.9 yet? Or what are we on? First Timothy, which one? Yeah, so Jerry has the last one, Titus 3.9. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Now, again, we could spend a lot of time talking about what each of those are, but we're not in Titus. We're just trying to show you that almost in every book, Paul is telling people, be careful about this. Be careful about this. And I understand this because I'm a fighter. If you're going to defend truth, you're going to be fighting in some way. But how do you do that without being quarrelsome? It's hard. And yet that's what Paul is calling us to. He's not saying that everybody in the church automatically has to agree or that somebody at the top needs to, needs to force them like, a, like Hitler forcing all the people in Germany to think just like he thinks. That's not what he's talking about. But he's saying in our pursuit of truth, in our pursuit of trying to learn the truth, we should not be quarrelsome with one another. 
That's his point. Now, this is the same Paul that wasn't afraid to confront Peter to his face, right? So there's a balance here, ridgeline, tension. Uh, There are times to fight and defend the truth against apostasy, certainly. Paul does that all the time. But he's talking about an attitude that loves the fight and loves to be right all the time. It is pride. Right. Mm -hmm. And in that situation, Peter was actually dividing two portions of the church, the Gentile portion from the uh, uh, Jewish portion. And Paul's like, no, there's a division. We can't have that. So he's confronting that truth to try to bring unity back to the church. All right, look at verse 12. Look at the various factions. What can we learn from these names? Because they're all saying that they follow someone or something. I guess all of them are some, someone. What can we learn about the factions, the divisions from this in verse 12? The person who says, I follow Paul? What type of person would that be? Yeah, I would say the one that follows Cephas would probably be the Jews. Peter, right? <laughs> Paul, what'd you say? Right. These are the historians. They love, they love uh, hey, our church was founded by Paul. Paul's the founder. It's like you know, Lutherans. You know, why are we Lutherans? Because Luther founded us. You know, so they're the historians of the group. And I'm just guessing. We don't really know. But I think that's probably true. How about Apollos? Right. These are the guys that are up to, they're the, um, they're the in vogue. They are the uh, up-to-date. Right. So here's, here comes Apollos, and he, like, he builds upon Paul's foundation, and he's connected with the Greeks, the in vogue, the, the intellectuals, and, man, he's sharp. He's able to handle all these things. So we like Apollos better than Paul. Paul's he's kind of getting old. I'll never forget when I was teaching the kids in youth group on, on uh, technology and uh, trying to help them, and probably one of the worst classes I've ever taught. Uh, I mean, I think I was hitting the right thing. I just think I could have done it better. But anyway, even my best, and I hope Tanner's not here this morning. Like, Tanner's, like, with me, but he's like, Mike, I don't know. I just wonder, maybe you're just getting too old for this. (laughs) We need somebody that's, you know, grows up with technology to help us understand this. I'm like, oh, boy. Okay, I'm faded. Get me out of here, you know. So the Paulus is like these guys that, know they're up to date. They're, they're dealing with all the, the important issues of the day, the Apollos crowd. Then you got the Cephas crowd, which is Peter, and I do think that they're probably the ones that are most connected to their Jewish roots. What about I follow Christ? How would you define them? <laughs> we are the mature ones, Okay. Good, I like that. The Presbyterian. <laughs> nice try. <laughs> well, they might desire unity, but they're actually creating disunity. They're the <laughs> it's, it, do we not do this even in denominations today? We are the church of God, but we're not. We're, we're distinguishing ourselves from all the other churches out there. That, yeah, but no, you have to understand that these are the guys that, that are claiming, these are the non-denominational people. We're not in any denomination, and yet you're all, you are a denomination. At the same time that you're trying to say you're separate from everybody, I mean, uh, united with everybody, you're above doctrinal differences, you're creating your own denomination. Okay. I'm sorry, there's, there's, there doesn't seem to be a real implication necessarily of exactly what they intend 
Oh, there we go. There we get to the Calvinists. We're not Calvinists because we love Calvin. We just love the truth. He's right. (laughs) But we do. We can. We can be more in love with Calvin than we can the church. He's, but he's using, when he says, I follow Christ, he is talking about one of the factions. He's not talking about, that's not the solution. He's talking about one of the factions. Right. And that's his point. See, because they're, they're saying, I follow Christ, because they're, they're making a division. And then he's saying, oh, because they're saying, we follow Christ, assuming that these people are not following Christ. And then he says, is Christ divided? No, Christ is above all these people. Right? He's the one head of the whole thing. Right, right. Paul's big point is saying that you're making divisions when there really aren't those divisions. That's his point. You're doing this not because there are true divisions. There is a true division between the mainline Presbyterian church and the PCA. There is a true division on doctrine, on who Christ is, the oneness of Christ. That is a true division. Paul would be okay with that because they say they're apostate. But there is not, and this is going to be, there are differences. There, are, there is not a true division between the saints in this church and the saints at Gateway or at Mount Home Baptist. With our differences, well, they say the same thing here. You know, and Paul, but Paul's not talking about, he's not talking about, uh, at this point, he's not making the distinction between, um, in the church, some who are truly born again and some who are not born again. He does do that at times. But in this place, he's saying, look, all of you, What's, his, what's his, his statement? All of you have been baptized into the name of Christ. You see? Well, I, I think it... it <sighs> There's many reasons why they're... They all have their own reasons for being in their sect. Just as today... People have their own reasons for being in the particular denomination that they're in. We all have our reasons for that. Baptism fits into it because there is only one baptism. There's not a Presbyterian baptism. There's not a Baptist baptism. Contrary to what Anabaptists teach, they really don't even accept Presbyterian baptism as a real baptism. Paul would say, if you're baptized into the name of Christ, it is one baptism. You are a brother with that other person who's baptized in the name of Christ. That's his theology. And when you start dividing from them, you are attacking them. I'm going to step back a minute. This is one of the reasons why I would love to have some sound theological discussion with my God-fearing brothers in some Baptist churches because I don't think that a Baptist has to automatically accept a Presbyterian view of baptism. I really don't. We don't even demand that of our members in this church. (laughs) There are some people in this church who don't baptize their kids in pay-to-Baptist way, okay? But what I hate, it just drives me crazy that if for some reason I had to go to a Baptist church, let's say I get, I don't know, whatever reason, I moved into an area where there's no Presbyterian church, and I'm like, I need to be united to the brothers, and I want to come be in a Baptist church. They would not con- include me as a member of their church unless I was rebaptized and dunked. I think that's a shame. I think it, I think it divides the church.
Uh, well, in my case, I was only baptized as a kid, so they would, they would reject that completely uh, as even a right form of baptism. But that still stresses the point that, that baptism is not something that should divide true Christians. It should unite Christians. And if I were going to that church, I would do what we do. I would accept somebody who doesn't accept the Presbyterian view of baptism as a member of the church. At the same time, I would want to keep trying to instruct them in the word of God to believe the covenantal view of baptism. But that's not the way it works in a Baptist church. You have to remain separate until you actually get rebaptized. Uh-huh. Right. Do you see how that so that's that's like almost a it's a driving a wedge between members of the church, okay? And I'm I'm not talking in terms of who's truly spiritually one. We're all all believers are spiritually one because <laughs> there's only one Christ. But what Paul's saying is that your your external baptism is a sign to you that we are all one. And, and there's not multiple different types of baptism. That's why Paul says, I didn't baptize. You didn't get baptized in the name of Paul. Except for a couple of you, he says. You got baptized in the name of Christ. Now, how do we do this with communion? What do we do with communion? How do we show that there is only one church? Do you, right, do you have to be a member of Faith Presbyterian Church or in our denomination? No, it's open to all who profess. Now, is it possible that some people come in and are not true Christians? Yeah, it's possible, and they take communion poorly. But it, the, the other side of that, of saying that you can't take communion unless we are, you're a member of our church, that just divides the church. The sacraments are there to unite the church. You're talking about Baptists? Baptism is the water baptism is the outward sign by which you enter into the visible church. Well, yeah, you you can get all that, but yes, um, I, I think it's true. We don't, we really don't think someone is a member of the church unless they've been baptized. Water baptism. You know, we believe that. Uh, so, um, Baptists and Presbyterians believe that. This is why we care so much about baptizing our kids, because we believe kids are members of the church. And so, therefore, if you're a member of the church, then you should have a sign of that membership. Spirit baptism... Is, is the true thing that saves you eternally. No question about it. Well, what they're telling, what they're using, I think so, because most people that I talk to that, that would force me to be rebaptized will at least acknowledge that they think I'm a Christian. Yeah, <laughs> so they will acknowledge that, yeah. Which I think creates the tension, right? If you, if you think you're in the church, then you should... You should be a member of the church. So, all right, we're going to pick this up. It's already 1045. But um, this whole aspect of unity is so foundational for Paul. And he's gonna, he is going to say things about unity that will blow your mind. At least they've blown my mind. Uh, one of them is that the way to have unity is through the teacher's which is crazy, the regular teaching of God's word. I mean, like, trying to get two pastors in a room to agree on things is like one of the hardest things in the world, and yet it's through us that there's going to be unity. Uh, I don't know, it, Paul's uh, pretty amazing. So, Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the truth of the, the union that we have with every other believer throughout all of history. Um, we are one in Christ. Help us to not be quarrelsome. Help us to hold fast to what we believe to be true, but to do it in a humble and gracious way, believing that the truth alone, convincing the hearts of your people, is what unites us. And I pray, Father, that you might bring us to greater and greater unity, even among different denominations, that we would have 
healthy discussion and dialogue, but it would not be quarreling and strife. In Jesus' name, amen.